uh, he was a fierce warrior. He was uh, surrounded uh, in the uh, Battle of the Wilderness, and one of his aides told him, General, uh, he was a colonel then, he said, Colonel, we're surrounded. And York said, well, that's good, because um, any way we shoot, we can hit a Yankee. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written the definitive guide to all 426 Civil War generals who served in the Confederacy. Author Dr. Samuel Mitchum is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and Warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest is a military historian who has written extensively on the Civil War South, a U.S. Army helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War and a graduate of the Command and General Staff College. He remained active in the reserves, qualifying through the rank of Major General. He's also a former visiting professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and has appeared on the History Channel, CBS, NPR, and the BBC. His book is called The Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, the definitive guide to the 426 leaders of the South's war effort. And author Dr. Samuel Mitchum joins us now. Dr. Mitchum, welcome to the show. Well, it's uh, great to be on there. Thank you for having me. This uh, I received the book uh, last week, and it really is amazing. It's <laughs> I'm, I haven't seen a book this big in a long time. And um, my first question is, the, the research on this must have been tremendous. How long did it take you to research the book? Well, I've written several other Civil War books, so uh, some of the material I used in those was also... Uh, transportable to this uh, so it wasn't like I started from ground zero about a year and a half I guess oh really um, yeah it uh, actually I had I intended for it to be multi-volume and uh, uh, um, you know one way you tell a professional from an amateur when it comes to book writing is professionals tend to talk in terms of words not pages and um, your typical book is uh, uh, 60 to 70,000 words. I had over 400,000 words. So I was going for multi-volume, but Regner uh, uh, said, uh, you know, uh, we'll publish it and we'll give you a decent advance, mm-hmm. but uh, you've got to reduce it to 250,000 words. And... Uh, I agreed to that with the condition that in two years, if I uh, uh, want to, I can uh, republish it with another publisher and make it multi-volume. Uh, oh, really? I don't know that I will, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, uh, I've got that option. So uh, yeah. it was uh, it was fun. I learned a lot. 
you know, I'll bet, I'll, I'll bet the research was just as fun as writing the book. I, it was, uh, especially with some of the obscure uh, people. I mean, everybody knows about General Lee and Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, etc. But, uh, you know, who's ever heard of Zebley in New York? But he was one of the more interesting generals I've run across. And that gets us to some of my my questions about the book, which, um, you know, doing a deep dive into it, which general, maybe it's Zebulon, but uh, which general surprised you the most and why? Well, I would say Zebulon. He was was from Maine. You could almost see Canada uh, (laughs) from his hometown, really. It was right on the border up in northern Maine. Uh, He had to go south a couple hundred miles to get to Boston. Um, wow. And he was educated in Kentucky, moved to Louis- Vidalia, Louisiana, and became uh, one of the largest slaveholders in the South. He uh, uh, he, had, he and his partner had 1,500 slaves, six different plantations. Wow. Uh, he had a talent for making money. Um, in fact, he had a, a military background, his uh uh, great grandfather was an aide to George Washington and was present at Yorktown, but he had no military training. The war began. He uh, was unanimously elected uh, to the secession convention, voted to secede, and raised his own regiment. He could certainly afford it. He paid more property taxes than anybody in Louisiana. But he wouldn't take the colonelcy because he didn't think he knew enough about it. He took a captaincy, company commander. Mm-hmm. But uh, throughout the war, the Louisiana brigades took such casualties that uh, um, he moved up by attrition. Stafford uh, was killed, General Hayes was badly wounded. And um, uh, he was a fierce warrior. He was uh, surrounded uh, in the uh, Battle of the Wilderness, and one of his aides told him, General uh, he was a colonel then. He was a colonel. We're surrounded. And York said, well, that's good. Because uh, <laughs> any way we shoot, we can hit a Yankee. <laughs> and <laughs> at Winchester, uh, this is how tough this guy was. Yeah. Um, his arm was blown off, ironically enough, by a main artillery battery. And they had to amputate what was left of it. And uh, a friend of his came to the hospital. And by that time, the uh, Confederate Army had been defeated and was retreating through Winchester. He said, come to my house. The Yankees won't bother you until you recover enough to go to the uh, prisoner of war camp. Let us take care of you. And um, York said, I will not. Uh, They will not take me alive. And he jumped Mm -hmm. on a horse and uh, made a remark to the effect that... uh, Tell the Yankees they can keep the arm, and uh, <laughs> rode over 20 miles to the nearest uh, Confederate medical facility, riding on horseback over 20 miles after your, an hour after your arm is blown off. That's crazy. Uh, that's a man's man, uh, and he could go bear hunt with a switch. Wow. <laughs> uh, he was. Uh, a pretty fierce warrior. So he was kind of the biggest surprise. On the other end of the scale, uh, which general impressed you the least and why? Okay, Lucius Northrop, the 
commissary general. He was incompetent. And uh, uh, the Confederacy never was properly supplied with food. Um, you know, you compare that to the Ordnance Department under uh, uh, Gallius. Um, you know, when Lee surrendered, the, the men had no food. And that was one of the reasons they had to surrender. But they all had at least 40 rounds of ammunition in their cartridge boxes, and some of them had 75. So, uh, you know, it was it was possible to supply them, but not with uh, Northrop. Uh, and Jefferson Davis and he were good friends, had been since before the war, and Davis would not fire him. Oh. Um, it was uh, February 1865. Uh, Davis... Uh, <laughs> Davis went through five secretaries of war, and uh, the last one was John Cable Breckinridge, a former uh, vice president of the United States, former major general, and uh, Breckinridge agreed to become secretary of war, but he had to be able to fire Northland, mm -hmm. and Robert E. Lee was all for it. He'd been trying to get him replaced for some time, and so Davis allowed them to fire him. But it was too late. It was only two months before Appomattox, before they got rid of him. Right, right. And what um, was his what was his name again? Northrop. Northrop. Okay. Yeah, Lucius Northrop. Um, he uh, he was very pedantic, very bureaucratic, and uh, very inept. Mm -hmm. Tended to replace him with inept people. They uh, they replaced him with. Um, a competent man, but it was too late. It was too late. Was he also corrupt as well? No, no, he was not personally corrupt. He, uh, um, you know, the North had some that were, well, right. so did the South, of course, but um, the North seemed to have more. But North was, uh, North was just an ex. He wasn't bad, a bad person. He just uh, couldn't do that job and... Uh, wouldn't admit it. I see. Yeah, in over his head. Yeah. yeah. Oh, badly, badly. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, former Navy SEAL and author Ben Milligan returns to Point of the Spear to discuss his time in the SEALs in his book, By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy SEALs. Uh, the DNA of uh, SEAL training comes from the preparations for D-Day. Hell Week comes from there. Um, all these sort of team building exercises that came from there it was all developed by, you know, the guy Draper Kaufman. I, I give probably, you know, one of the bigger sections of the book is devoted to Draper Kaufman, the reasons that he came up with Hell Week and the reasons he created training the way that he did and why that, that training still exists today. Ben's episode will also release as a full video podcast on YouTube, another show you won't want to miss. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Now back to the conversation. Thinking about the, the range of generals in the Confederacy, in your research, did you come across across anyone who could rival Robert E. Lee? Because everyone thinks, you know, they associate Lee as, as obviously the commander of the Confederate forces. 
Did you come across someone who, if Lee wasn't there, could have stepped in to that role? No. No, I didn't. Uh, some could have come close. Beauregard could have on his best day. Beauregard uh, had an uneven record. Of course, I guess so did Lee. But, um, you know, Beauregard, like at Shiloh, uh, terrible. Uh, First Manassas, brilliant. Siege of Charleston, brilliant. Uh, uh, Petersburg in uh, 1864, the Yankees had the jump on them. Uh, they outnumbered the Confederates uh, three to one, and Lee uh, Lee was north of the James trying to get there in time. But Beauregard had to take him on by himself for two days, and he whipped them and uh, bottled up a whole Union army in the Bermuda Hundred. That was a uh, a brilliant campaign from the southern point of view. But uh, you, uh, Beauregard's one of those people you didn't know what you'd get. Um, like uh, after the evacuation of Charleston, he was commander of the Western Front, and his depositions uh, were terrible. Mm. Uh, I mean, Sherman uh, outnumbered him um, almost three to one. And you, you know yourself, when you've got that kind of odds against you, the only proper thing you can do with any hope of victory is concentrate all of your forces in one place and um, uh, hope Sherman would divide his army and defeat a fragment of his army and then take on the rest. Uh, mm. you know, this is how Stonewall Jackson did the uh, Valley campaign. Right. Um, Beauregard didn't do that. And uh, Robert E. Lee uh, demoted him here. That's when Lee appointed Joseph E. Johnson, commander of the Western Front, for the last time, and uh, demoted Beauregard to his second in command. I don't think Lee was replaceable. I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I wondered about that. The surrender at Appomattox. Were there any generals who wanted to continue the fight and not surrender? Yeah, there were several. Fitz Lee didn't want to surrender. Uh, uh, what was his name? Ramsher broke out. He didn't um, didn't surrender. He ended up joining Johnston. Hmm. Um, yeah, there were several. Zebulon York didn't want to surrender, but he wasn't in mathematics. He was uh, trying to keep President Davis's escape route open, and he succeeded. Uh, e. Porter Alexander, the artillery commander, he uh, he wanted Lee to dissolve the army and conduct guerrilla warfare. Uh, mm -hmm. which would have, uh, he later realized that was the wrong thing to do. It would have, uh, the war would not have ended in 1865, but uh, the South was already devastated, carrying on guerrilla warfare for another 10 years. It would have uh, uh, completely ruined the South. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Lee patiently discussed it with him. Uh, Lee was generally patient with his uh, junior officers. And uh, uh, B. Porter was later ashamed that he even brought it up. Well, he was the uh, artilleryman at uh, Gettysburg, Alexander. Yes. Yeah. He was commanded the 1st Corps artillery at Gettysburg. Were there any um, generals who, in the post-war years, actually rejoined the, the U.S. Army? Yeah, there were uh, three for sure. Uh, Fitz Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee's nephew, uh, commanded the Seventh Corps in the Spanish-American War, and it was on its way to Cuba when the 
Spaniards surrendered. Uh, Calvreth Butler, uh, first name was actually Matthew, but he went by the name Calvreth. He was uh, uh, quite a ladies' man, um, wasn't always faithful to his wife. We considered not promoting him for that reason, but he was a great cavalry officer. Hmm. Uh, had his leg blown off and nevertheless uh, returned to field duty. Um, he was a, a major general in the U.S. Army during the Spanish-American War. I guess most notably uh, fighting Joe Wheeler. He commanded the cavalry on the Western Front in the Civil War. Uh, he commanded the U.S. cavalry in uh, Cuba. In fact, uh, there's a picture of him with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the commander of the Rough Riders, which was part of uh, Wheeler's command. He was, he was Wheeler was present at the end of the Battle of San Juan Hill. Um, so, uh, yeah, those three were the big ones. Did it take a, a while for them to be accepted back into the... That was 1898. Uh, passions had cooled. Um, there was no problem accepting them at that point. Now, uh, of course, the war ended in 1865, uh, so over 30 years had elapsed. It's uh, Spanish-American War had happened uh, before. It would have been more difficult. Although, uh, we almost went to war with Spain in 1873. <laughs> and uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, decided that he would like to command the troops, the cavalry against Spain. He wrote Sherman a letter. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Sherman's the one said we must kill Forrest. He didn't care if it cost 10,000 men, bankrupt the treasury, Nathan Bedford Forrest must die. Uh, when he got the letter uh, from Forrest, he got excited and uh, went to the White House where uh, Ulysses S. Grant was president and said, I want him. Uh, if he gives the Spaniards half as much trouble as he gave us, it will be a tremendous asset. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, Sherman had already said that Forrest was the greatest cowardman in American history. And, uh, How did that end? Diplomacy. Did, uh, did Forrest come on board? Well, um, diplomacy prevailed, and the war was avoided, uh, so uh, he never uh, never actually rejoined the Army. Um, twenty five. The war didn't was delayed twenty five years by right. diplomacy. Right. Uh, by then, both Sherman and Forrest had died. Well, such a fascinating book. It's called oh, the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals. The Definitive Guide to the 426 Leaders of the South's War Effort. Dr. Mitchum, thank you so much for being on the show today. I sure enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, former Navy SEAL and author Ben Milligan returns to Point of the Spear to discuss his time in the SEALs in his book, By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy SEALs. Uh, the DNA uh, SEAL training comes from the preparations for D-Day. Hell Week comes from there. Um, all these sort of team building exercises that came from there it was all developed by, you know, the guy Draper Kaufman. I, I give probably, you know, one of the bigger sections of the book is devoted to Draper Kaufman, the reasons that he came up with Hell Week and the reasons he created training the way that he did and why that, that training still exists today. Ben's episode will also release as a full video podcast on YouTube, another show you won't want to miss. 
And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.